Welcome to Dragon Talk, everyone. So excited to be here with you for the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I'm Greg Tito, and that clapping is from Shelly Mazanova. Woo! Yeah. (laughs) You are clapping it up. Yeah. Why don't we? Why should you be afraid to clap for yourself? Give yourself an ovation once in a while. It feels good, actually. Yeah. Try it. Try it at home right now. Good on you. Yeah. I uh, I clap a lot, like, when I'm, like, you know, listening to music or something like that. Like, it feels you like a, a, a go-to for me. Yeah. Wait, when you're just, like, just listening to music, you just start clapping to the rhythm? Sometimes, yeah. Do you? Yeah. That's your go-to? If, there, if one, especially if there's a song that has, like, a, a clapping moment, like, we'll yeah. do it, like, all the time. Yeah. It's not just John Mellencamp. It's... <laughs> <laughs> It's not just for Jack and Diane. <laughs> Second on the dog. I'm the taste of freeze. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good, actually. Hey, it's the only <laughs> uh, song I can sing. That's it. That's the only one. Is that your karaoke go-to no, song? No, I wish it. Well, no, that's not. I'm not even really that fond of that song. I don't know why. I, I, I don't know, but you could sing and clap. And that would be really impressive to your <laughs> I audience. can't do two things at once, though. That's the problem. Oh, then probably not a good song for you. No, not at all. Anyway, what? We, what are we doing here? We are recording a podcast. We, oh. have, we spoke to an amazing gentleman, Brett Norton, the executive producer of Neverwinter, the MMORPG uh, that's made by Cryptic Studios. Uh, they just released a brand new trailer during D&D Direct. Uh, that is all about their new module coming out, yeah. Dragon Slayer. How cool is that? I know, right? Revamping dragons in this MMO. I can't believe Neverwinter's been along, around as long as it has. A decade. Almost a decade. Almost a decade, yeah. Older than our kids. Oh my gosh, they they are older than some of our kids. That's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, it is a uh, a wonderful game to play. It is a lifestyle game. People have been uh, into it for years. Uh, it's had many... Uh, you know, iterations. It's shown a lot of Dungeons and Dragons modules within it. Uh, I think I used the Curse of Strahd um, gif uh, that is like a zoom in to Strahd sitting on his throne. Oh, that came from yeah. a trailer for their for their Strahd uh, bit, which was really awesome. Um, but yeah, they've got some great stuff coming, inspired by Fizban's Treasury of Dragons and uh, all of the uh, amazing chromatic dragons that you can now fight and I can't wait to hear from Brett about how they've implemented that as well as just about the industry in general. Right. Um, probably safe to say if you like dragons you're probably going to really like what they're cooking up. Yeah. It's true? Yeah. Cooking up fresh dragon meat. Oh, the way it sizzles. Smell <laughs> that dragon meat. I'm a vegetarian. I would never eat a dragon. But you at least would want to smell it. No. No. <laughs> What if you had? What if uh, your uh, sorceress slayed that dragon with a fire spell? I don't think she would. No, she'd feel too bad about hurting a dragon. D and D's hard for me sometimes because of all the the, yes. the, the animals that must yes. be destroyed. Yes, I don't want to hurt them. I know I must, but I don't like. I don't want to fight a dragon, especially a young dragon. Come on. Yeah. 
Right. Like, it's in the name. It's like young dragon. Like, I don't want to kill a young dragon. I know. I just can't. Or oh, like somebody's mother. Like, oh, I can't. I know. It's so, I do it. Okay. I do it. But I, <laughs> the fantasy me even struggles with that a little. Uh, I can understand that. That's part of uh, that trope, right? It's about, you know, vanquishing people. But you can be like, hmm, that's not necessarily always good, is it? It's hard to. Can we just talk about it? <laughs> Can we just talk about what makes you angry? Yeah. Why Why don't you like me? Roll a perception check. <laughs> and you'll figure out why. <laughs> a persuasion check, too. Mm. Do I have a bonus? I did pretty good. Anyway. Well, we have rolled our uh, artistry. God, what would be an author's... I guess you'd have to roll a, a tools um, check to we see have... how well we have written something. Oh, God, Greg. It could people, be a performance check. People are going to tell us how well we wrote something. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We, uh, we've talked about this a couple of times, but we wrote a book. It's, it, it's like a book. It's, it's a real book. It's not even just like, oh, we just wrote it and it's on our hard drive and sometimes we send it back and forth to each other. No, no. It's a book that somebody asked us to write and that is going to be published by a real publisher in September of this year. I know. We've got the I've got the PDF proof open right I here in too. front of me. It's real. It looks so real. Yes. Uh, it is called Welcome to Dragon Talk. Inspiring conversations about Dungeons and Dragons oh and God. the people who love to play it. Like I already love it. It's got Shelley Mazenoble and Greg Tito. Our names are on this. It has a Library of Congress cataloging <laughs> number. Like, that means it's, it's real. It's it's like so real. And yes, our names are on it. Yeah. It like our names are all over this book. We wrote this book together. Yeah, for you, for those of you listening, it is basically a uh, testament to this podcast and the amazing people that we've met and interviewed and our thoughts about them as well as telling their stories. <laughs> our uh, thoughts about them. Yeah. I actually didn't really enjoy this person. <laughs> no, not not like that at all. Right. We went uh, and chose interviews that just spoke to us or told a really important uh, story. Um, and uh, I, I hope people like it. I hope they do too. I, really I hope do. you rolled high. I hope so. Uh, yeah. Honestly, we could write, you know, five, ten books about Dragon Talk because everyone we talk to does inspire us in some way yeah. um, and hopefully inspires you too who who are listening. But we had to narrow it down. We really did. Um, and it was hard. But once we, we got to, to writing, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I went back and listened to all of these interviews and you know that's hard for me. Yes. But I actually found myself like, kind of laughing along at some things and just I actually I found us very charming yeah. um, <laughs> it was just and like just being re-inspired or just excited again about like why this person you know was has become a, a personal friend or why this person's story is still something that stays with me or why I I reference this interview a lot when when I tell people about why I love D and D. So it was just nice to kind of go back to all that and and visit. And I think we have a really good collection of stories in this from Me like too. people from all all different paths and 
all with this one common language of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be you know, talking a lot more about the uh, essays and the people that we have chosen for this in, in the future episodes here to come. So we want to leave some of that for you. But going back to what you were just saying, Shelly, about uh, laughing. Like, did you have that experience? This happened to me a couple times where I was going back to listen to old episodes where I was pausing a lot because I was taking notes and writing yeah. a long time. So I would hear something and then think of a joke. Yes! And then <laughs> replay the episode. And like, I hear myself making yes! that exact same That's joke. That's exactly. Several <sighs> times I was like, oh, it would have been funny to, oh, I did. Oh, wait, I did. I already said that. <laughs> That's how predictable we are. We are very predictable, but we also, we just know each other really well. That's true. Yeah. Yes. We know the references to make to make each other laugh. And yes. That comes through. That and comes through in this book, too. I mean, we have a few uh, footnotes in here that are different, definitely references to the way that we uh, talk to each other and banter on the, on the podcast. Yes. And I, I like that we were able to incorporate that because we have heard from people that they people actually like the fact that we are friends in real life and we talk to each other <laughs> like we're friends in real life. So some of that is incorporated here, but you also get like a little history about how the dragon talk even came to be, which to me is still just a funny story. So it is a really funny story. Yeah. <laughs> about our our first time meeting in person and then you getting hired at Wizards and just our, our different perspectives on that first moment when you became the fourth host of Dragon Talk. <laughs> it was an episode where there was four hosts. And, and one two guest. people. Yeah, maybe even one. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was it was fantastic. And I will always remember. I remember that I picture that conference room still to this day uh, because it had the that board game laid out on the table. Uh, and and yeah, I will always remember that moment. And we got to memorize because like, we haven't really even talked about that that much here on this podcast about how it was you know created and a lot of the stuff that we did behind the scenes um, in uh, bringing a lot of the folks on this podcast together. So. You get yes. to see some of that, some of the some of the inner history of the workings of what goes on at yeah. Wizards of the Coast. Behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So just some really funny, good, touching stories. I'm so excited. But I really hope that that people um that, that they find something to enjoy in it. There's a little bit of something for everyone. So if, if you are a listener, great. You're gonna actually remember a lot of these interviews and and get to know what we were really what we were really thinking when we were talking <laughs> to these people <laughs> that's right yeah and the jokes yep there are yeah. many many times that we make each other laugh even in these in the writing of this uh which was which hopefully comes through um so yeah welcome to dragon talk comes out in september it's from the university of iowa press they've done a great job um, guiding this project along the way, you know, editing it and and refining it and getting it down to uh, what we think is just a hopefully a really fun book. I hope so. Yeah, we'll be talking more about it uh, over the weeks and months to come, and maybe even going on some other podcasts to talk about it. So those of you listening oh, who yes. are creators or want to talk to uh, Shelley and I uh, about this book and, and Dragon Talk and Dungeons and Dragons as a, as a whole, this is it. We're we'll opening do it, it up. We would yeah. love that. That would be so fun. Please, yes, let reach, us let us come talk to your podcasts. Yeah, so reach out to. I think the email address to get in touch with us is uh, in the show notes uh, for this episode. So yeah, reach out. We would love to be on your podcast and talk to you and hopefully, uh, you know, tell the story. 
And maybe we can even like read a little snippets here. And Ooh, there. excerpts? We can do excerpts? I don't know. Can oh, we? That's like real. <laughs> that makes, <laughs> makes me feel like a real author. I know, right? Yeah. We're gonna have to get on on the TikToks because that's where that's where all the the book talker <laughs> talkers are, and yeah, I, so we're gonna I, have to do a little paragraph or two. Of I will our not reading. be on TikToks. I will not be doing. <laughs> you will, Greg. Dang it! Right. You will. All right. Well, uh, we don't have a, uh, a smaller segment before our interview for this one, but I did want to let you know next week we are going to have another very special guest. Game designer Corey Bowen from the Magic the Gathering team is going to be on and talking all about the Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate set. It is the second Magic set uh, that has D&D characters in it. You remember Adventures of the Forgotten Realms last summer. This one is all about using commanders. Uh, so that's a very exciting format. We're going to talk about that with Corey and how it's, I wouldn't say it's, it's the same as a D&D group, but it is more analogous to the casual sitting down, having a good time, playing uh, magic cards that are in the same theme of Dungeons and & Dragons and all that fine stuff. So much more of a, a storytelling, casual format um, Commander is, and we can't wait to learn more about it from Corey, as well as some of the fun cards and things that are in there. Um, the, you know, all how to how to make a Commander deck, what's your favorites about that, well, how you can do Commander drafts, uh, and, and enjoy that with you, you know, having a, a party of friends with you. Um, and, you know, it doesn't even matter if you're a Magic fan or not because there's a lot of D&D flavor and interest in this, and so hopefully this is something that, you know, you might be excited about. So look for that. That's going to be uh, our next episode. Sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Already looking forward to it. Absolutely. And then, yeah, they're going to start previewing that set around May 17th. So when we publish our, you will get uh, some more sneak peeks, I think. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we are excited to talk to Brett Norton, the executive producer for Neverwinter uh, at Cryptic Studios. Uh, Just a quick note about this interview. So excited. We jumped right in. uh, And so we don't have our normal um, kind of introduction with him because uh, he was just so excited to talk about his history with video game development and how he got into that. how he started. Yeah. So, Shelly, you just dropped in like a, oh, hey, can we talk about this? And then it was like... yeah. We are in the interview, and so I'm glad uh, I asked. It's gonna. It's a good story. Spoiler it's a really good story, and I think a lot of people out there uh, who listen to this, as well as people who pay attention to uh, game design in general, are always like, "How can I do that? How can I yeah. go to school for this? Or how can I develop the skills needed to get a job in the gaming industry?" And it's always great to hear from a professional uh, their path. And you know, obviously, you can't always emulate it, but it's always great uh, to to hear. And because we didn't give Brett his proper like introduction before the interview, let's give him his applause right now. That's it. Welcome to Dragon Brett Talk, Brett. Welcome. Woo! Yay. Can we talk about like your pathway into video games? And I just think that people who listen are interested, obviously, in gaming and like how people get into their careers. Sure. I'm happy to go into that. I had a bit of an unusual start. Uh, Mostly just came from the fact that I was a big gamer and I played everything from PC games to console games to early handheld games, etc. And as I was basically getting out of high school and going into college, I was a huge fan of real-time strategy games. Um, Mm. Played Command & Conquer 
early on, extremely competitively on an online service called the Total Entertainment Network, got very good at it, which led to me also be getting good at some other real-time strategy games. And thanks to that, you know, the internet was just starting to flourish right about then. And I found some people online that were playing a real-time strategy game uh, that was the uh, same one that I was. It was called Total Annihilation Kingdoms. It was the fantasy sequel to the original highly successful Total Annihilation. And there was not a lot of good information available at the time on the game. There wasn't a whole lot of online info. And so we got together and said, cool, we're going to write like some strategy guides. I put together a whole bunch of multiplayer strategy guides. And the uh, developers of the game had put out this spreadsheet that had all the unit stats and a terribly formatted table. And I cleaned that up and made it into like a little cheat sheet on what the best, most cost-effective units were in the game. There was, there was something like 200 plus units in the game. They, they always did you know mass quantities of units in those games. And it was kind of hard to figure out which ones were the best to build. So I kind of did some analysis of that. Uh, we put all this information together, made a website, a fan website for Total Annihilation Kingdoms and put out all our guide information. And it got very well received. And a guy who worked in the gaming industry um, who was working for the gathering of developers at the time was playing the game, also a fan, read it and says, this is better than the material that we pay <laughs> our authors to write about our games for like published books and things like that too. And they asked us, would you, would your group be willing to work on official manuals and strategy guides and such for some upcoming gathering of developer games? And we said, sure. So they threw us on a game called Age of Wonders, which was a turn-based strategy game. And yeah. we wrote the manual for the game and the official strategy guide. Um, we actually formed a company, all these strangers that I'd never met in person. We'd only ever spoken online. We formed a company and started writing. It was called the Stratos Group. And we started writing manual strategy guides for originally gathering of developers, but then also we worked with Versus Books and Mars Publishing. And so I published a couple things like the official original Ghost Recon strategy guide. I worked on a couple books that were called the Parents' Guides to Gaming and wrote a bunch oh. of supplemental materials for that and then did a couple other manuals for age of wonders 2 and then a, a few other random games like submarine titans and tacky on the fringe but all that basically led me to the path is like you know i really like working with and on video games i got to go to e3 and that was fantastic and i was like you know i should try to figure out what i can do to make this more of a full-time career since i was basically being a student and this was my part-time job throughout much of college was a lot of this writing so i looked into it and found out that video game design was something that was very close to the things that i was doing i was um, doing a lot of spreadsheet work a lot of times when we had games and they wanted to figure out like i you know what's the dps of this weapon or things like that i would actually model those out in spreadsheets and that led me into thinking okay well that's actually what game designers do a lot so coming out of college at the time there wasn't a whole lot of formal education for video game development there wasn't a whole lot of game design schools or anything like that so i got through college and then started applying for entry-level video game design jobs and wound up oddly enough getting a job in houston texas at timegate studios working on a real-time strategy game so obviously they seem to have liked my experience with strategy titles and thought that some of the materials that i made during my sort of writing years were solid enough and they brought me on as an entry-level game designer. And from there, I've worked in varying degrees of video game design, a little bit of game production as well, too. And then uh, I've been lead designer on some projects, design director, and now I'm the executive producer on Neverwinter here at Cryptic Studios. I That's feel, amazing. I feel <laughs> yeah. like I I must have sensed there was going to be a good story in there. <laughs> Because we don't always ask that yeah. question. <laughs> it, 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 it was odd, especially for a lot of people back, you know, sort of around the 2000 and before, getting into the gaming industry was often weird and indirect because there wasn't, you just kind of had to run into people or find something about that or just be really passionate about it. You know, people stumbled into it through a lot of weird ways. That's amazing. Uh, we, you know, we, uh, I, 
we often introduce everybody and get you know people uh, up to speed on what uh, our guests are doing. Um, but Brett, you jumped right into a wonderful story, and I didn't want to stop you. I didn't either, right? Because you had like you know, it's almost as if you'd done that before. I've done it a couple of times. It's something that you know a lot of people ask. I've, I've done a couple of uh, gaming conferences and, and GDCs and such where people often ask, like, you know, how did you get in the gaming industry? Why did you get in the gaming industry? And you know, and people often ask, like, what are careers in the gaming industry? Like, you know, I'm, you know, what could I do? And so I try to break it down. I've fortunately been at, at enough projects and at a high enough level to kind of know what do programmers do, what do artists do, what do designers do, et cetera. And I can often talk to people who are very interested, students especially, about yeah. wanting to break into the gaming industry and what the different jobs are and what the job details are. So it's something that if you go to like a IGD, the International Game Developers Association, I've gone to a lot of meetings for that. And that's often has a lot of students, a lot of college kids, et cetera, come in, they ask uh, questions like that. So I've had to had to talk about the, the how to my career path as well as what I recommend for other people's career paths. I hope that now, for anyone listening, that if you do want to have have some interest in video game development as a job, um, there are many schools out there that offer you know degrees, usually master level degrees in programming, design, yeah. art, production, etc. There's much better formal educations, and some of the programs are quite good. I've hired and worked with a number of people that graduated, as an example, uh, the Guild Hall at SMU, and their program puts you through the rigmarole and it really lets you know the how to how to handle game development. So it's there's some really solid education options out there now, so you don't have to just kind of rely on your hobby activities or just kind of what you do on your own to get in the industry anymore. Isn't that kind of wild though, to think like it hasn't been that long that schools have actually had game design as a major. Like it's yeah. within like, you know, the last couple of decades, but it seems like it's a very viable career path for people. Yeah, and like, there's still a, a large demand for it. It's an expanding yeah. industry. It's one that's been growing every single year. We always need more designers, more programmers, more artists, et cetera. Almost every game company, almost every has like some sort of position they're trying to fill. So it's it's a it's a space that has need for more and more good quality people. Yeah. And the from what I have seen you know, from the outside looking in and talking to people like you, the the teams are huge in a lot of cases. I mean, like there's a lot of roles that go into making a video game. Like you've, you know, listed out several of them from producing and yeah. narrative design and yeah. art. Teams and- can be small, they can be huge. I've worked on projects that had under 20 people on them. And I've worked on projects that had over 200 people on them. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can work on a small project where you sometimes have to wear multiple hats. You know, like you might have to do multiple uh, types of art or you might have to be like, I, one project I was both a designer and a producer. I was balancing stats on a unit and then having to package up milestones to send out to our publisher. So sometimes you have to do that on smaller projects. And then on bigger projects, things get more specialized. Like you might be an artist, but you might specialize in animation and you might specialize in only one part of animation on a very, very large team, something huge. You know, if you think of like a, a major AAA franchise like Grand Theft Auto or anything along those lines, those those have so many people on them, people are often very specialized. But if you think about some of the smaller projects you might see, um, even like, you know, successful sort of indie games like Hades, like those often have people working in art and design or program that are wearing multiple hats. Um, it just kind of depends. Again, bigger teams, more specialized, smaller teams get to do more things. And it just, it just kind of varies. So, um, you know, depending on the kind of stuff that you like to do, you can often find a company and a project that's sort of the size and fits the, the sort of work that you like to do. The way you're describing it sounds like, you know, indie film and, and indie theater and things like that, where, you know, it's a collaborative art form, but it can be, you know, at different scales, right? Based on, you know. Absolutely. From- 
and it very much is now. You know, when video games first started up, it, it would sometimes be the 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 you know product of one person. You know, one guy at Atari making a video game, and it was his, and they were the video game designer, programmer, artist, everything. <laughs> and then it kind of expanded, and they, they usually kind of the first separation was generally programming and art, and one of those two would also handle that design and production. Then it grew, and now we have you know there's a couple different categories between like uh, audio, art programming, design, and then production. And those encompass generally sort of the, the large main categories and of where a lot of jobs uh, and duties fall in the gaming industry now. Um, but within that one, there's tons of subspecialties. You know, in design, there's, game, there's systems designers, content designers, level designers, writers. Uh, so tons of different subspecialties even within that. And get bigger teams, more specialization, smaller teams, you might have to be the level designer, content designer, systems designer, and writer. Wow, yeah. I... I... We definitely want to talk about everything that's going on with Neverwinter <laughs> and those ma- amazing modules, but I think I've, I'm now I'm I'm pulling at this string a little bit more because I, I hear a lot of people who are uh, dungeon masters or just D and D players in general. They really want to gravitate towards uh, the design work and the narrative design work. How does that relate to um, to video game work? Do you think that people who are you know well versed in running a D and D campaign can transfer some of those skills? Of, of putting story in front of players to putting story in front of players in a digital realm? Absolutely. And a number of people that work on Neverwinter are in exactly that space. Uh, Randy, who's the uh, lead designer on Neverwinter right now, is a very avid D&D player and also a you know DM. He's, he's run, I've played in some of his campaigns and, and whatnot. And uh, a lot of that, it, you know, the, the world building skills and narrative skills, um, those play into specific design disciplines, often focused on writing, often focused on also what you might call content design or level design as well. Um, and depending on how much you're into things like D&D, especially if you're onto more of the system system side, if you like to do homebrew mechanics for things like that, that's usually more what we'd call like a systems designer or a gameplay designer. So it kind of depends on kind of what area of D&D you like. If you're the kind of guy that likes to read about classes and abilities and perks and all those sorts of things, that's usually more on the system side. If you're one that likes to read more about the story and history and focus more on like uh, world building and things like that, that's generally more on the content world or, or map side. Um, but depending on, on your skill sets, you do have to kind of like learn how to sort of express those elements of world building through video game tool sets. Um, you know, Cryptic has its own proprietary engine that we build games like Neverwinter and Star Trek Online on. And then there's also publicly available engines like the Unreal Engine, Unity, et cetera. Um, and you have to learn how to do that sort of world building and storytelling through those engines. And that's the toughest part of sort of like translating skills from like pen and paper games into like video games. It's like, yeah, you're going to have to pick up Unreal or Unity or something like that too and work through the tools, go through the learning curve and, and learn how to like, you know, build experiences that, uh, that and build worlds that you can with that tool set rather than just using your imagination. You know, you got to sit down and actually build things out with uh, meshes and BSP and all kinds of stuff to, to build out a map and then script all the stuff that you want to do with it, et cetera. And it takes time. There's definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's not something you're just going to jump into, you know, like learning the guitar and learning how to play that really well. It's just, you can, you had to practice, practice, practice. And that's what a lot of video game development comes down to is like, you want to tell stories, but you got to practice enough on the tool so it just kind of becomes second nature so you're focusing on the story and you and you kind of know how you you do all the basics and everything with the tools at that point so you get really focused on good quality storytelling and less worry about like well how do i do x with this and unreal or unity do um do narrative designers need to have that familiarity with with engines like you're talking about 
I would recommend it absolutely, and because it, it'll depend on how big the team is. For example, if you have a very large team, they may have de very dedicated writers that spend, relatively speaking, little time in the game engine and tool sets. But if you wind up being on a smaller team, the odds are you will be writing the story and implementing that story also into the tools uh, and and helping script NPCs set things up, etc. Um, the more specialized the project, the more sometimes you can be focused on you know elements like just purely narrative and purely writing space. But the smaller the teams and the more multifunction teams, the more you're going to have to probably do implementation work. So like I said, both writing the story and then putting it into the game as well. Just like the producer on an indie film needs to also do craft <laughs> services. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, when you yeah. made the connection between indie film and your title is executive producer, is the executive producer on a video game equivalent to like what an EP would do on a film? It varies because I know that even with an executive producers on film, sometimes it's just like they throw an EP credit at people who are tangentially attached to the project and the real work's done by like the producer and the director. The EP is the guy who just funded it. Uh, I'm not funding Neverwinter. I'm a more hands-on, <laughs> um, you know, so as, as EP, I'm, basically the the head of the game um all the various leads the design leads art leads etc programming leads report to me uh, i don't micromanage or manage directly any of the specific designers programmers artists etc i generally manage the leads so that's kind of my role on the team is that i manage the uh the group of leads that then get everything done within one and we may and i try to make sure that a we're collaborating we're communicating both with the leads and with the rest of the team so they know what our goals are how we're going to accomplish it i work on what the processes are for how we build stuff and i'm also you have to be a bit of a sort of mouthpiece for the players too like you know i play a lot of neverwinter and i'm pretty familiar with it and i had to make sure it's like hey we're going to work on x you know why are we working on x will x make the audience happy does it kind of give them what they want we think it'll be fun and can we do it as a practical for us you know there's this the tough part of game development is always trying to figure out like what do the players want and then two uh, can you do it? And if so, how? Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of tough questions there sometimes with the number of people you have, the amount of time you have, and what you're trying to get stuff done. You're like, cool, we want to do this idea to be great, you know, super awesome, but it's going to take like two years and we need it done in one. So not going to happen. Got to think of something else. Oh, boy. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a realm I often have to live in, just making sure that we're finding the balances and that the way we go about estimating, scoping, and, and managing all that stuff, so. If, it sounds like if we're just trying to find a, a, a role that's equivalent on a, on a film or a theater set, it sounds like it's like a combination of director and and more creative producer, yeah. like put that's, together. That's definitely the way it goes. And to note, um, the way that we that uh, Cryptic uses executive producer is not uh, necessarily how the entire industry uses it. Uh, again, on larger projects, EP may be almost purely business focused. There may be so many people on the project that they have multiple leads beneath them who every, all the other leads re report to, et cetera. Uh, Neverwinter's team isn't huge, so I have to have more direct interaction with the leads, which is great for me because I like to be at least somewhat close to the, the game and the development side. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, on, on much, much larger projects, they may be far more removed. And not every project has traditionally an executive producer. They, the leadership structures on game and within the gaming industry as a whole is various sort of every company makes up their own. It's not <laughs> like a consistent thing that's been spread out and shared. There is a decent amount of some consistency, but you might find that, you know, what an executive producer does, say at Cryptic Studios, might be very different than what they do at Electronic Arts or Activision or something along those lines. Um, there's and usually gets, some overlap, but there'll probably be a few things different. And like some projects have what they, a figure they call game director or creative director, which might, you know, focus almost entirely just on like what the game is and and focus
focusing on, on player audience and they don't focus much on the how, for example. Because of the size of the Neverwinter team, I kind of have to wear a couple of hats. So I'm wearing a bit of both the the direct the game director kind of sense where I'm trying to make sure that we're representing and, and understanding what the players want and that we we can do it. And then also a bit on more on the just production side where it's like, hey, how can we get this done? Can we get this done? And how many people and how much time will it take to get done? And those roles oftentimes get split though on larger teams. Those credits, I, I totally like. Even when people try to talk about like TV writing or things like that, like those those writers have producing credits for each you know episode that they're on. So it gets even more confusing when you try to like apply yeah, yeah. Yeah. titles to different even different projects or companies within the same thing. That's totally true. So, but you have uh, you know this role that we're talking about. It's it's recent, right? It's as of February of this year that that you yeah. took on the uh, the EP role. Um, what's been like your most exciting moment kind of running Neverwinter for Cryptic here? I mean, it's an interesting one. I've only been on for a couple of months. And I, so I stepped in and uh, it was great to get uh, the current module working on Dragon Slayer. And we got the chance to put together like a really great trailer for D&D Direct. And uh, so cool. that was, you know, a, a great moment. We were super happy to have that out there. And, you know, that's kind of the first piece of um, first major release that everyone has worked on that I've been a part of directly that's come out. Um, there's a lot of other things that I'm very excited about, unfortunately, that I can't talk about because, <laughs> you know, a lot of that, a lot of uh, Dragon Slayer was already sort of uh, underway when I came on board. It takes upwards of six months in many cases to produce a major module for Neverwinter. So as you can see, you know, I came in and there was a, a lot of work that already went into it, but we're working on a number of really cool things that are up and coming that I absolutely cannot talk about because we're planning it like a year plus in advance. Mm. Um, and I've been working on the long-term roadmap with the team with some very uh, cool ideas. So I'm kind of excited about some of those internal ones, but I definitely was super excited about the Dragon Slayer uh, preview trailer. I really like the concept art they did for each of the chromatic dragons and that. Um, and it's just great to see some of that that great hype coming out of it. And then, the, like I said, the rest will be to get for us will just be to see how uh, people react to it. Um, we'll be putting some of the uh, work up on our, we have a preview server basically on PC where we upload sort of like in-development things as they get roughly about the 75 Five to eighty-five percent mark that start showing up on our preview service, so we can test them out in a uh, live environment. And we will be having some components of Dragon Slayer coming up on preview uh, this week if everything goes according to plan. So that's nice. a big moment that we've been working towards for months now. That yeah, is what, super cool. Yeah, the trailer was amazing. I loved yeah. seeing dragons come to life in the in the digital realm. There, like, what was it like uh, working? Uh, you know, and, and and having that response uh, to what is you know, a very iconic monster of Dungeons and Dragons. It's half of the title right there. There you go. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was it was great to get the chance to to, to see that. I get all props though on on the trailer that goes to uh, uh, Gearbox San Francisco. The marketing team over there was responsible for. They worked closely with a a company. I have to look up the name. I can't remember off the top of my head, but they coordinated and put together a lot of the materials, et cetera, storyboarded and all. So we got to focus almost purely on game development while they, they asked us our opinion. But you know, our art director had to give him some feedback. He's like, no, the Black Dragon's arms too beefy. It doesn't look like that. You got to like slim that down and such. So he got he got really into the weeds. Talking Talking about trying to make sure that the dragons represented as as close as possible the proportions and the sort of physique that D and is trying to try, especially with the fifth edition dragons and how that how different that they look and separate months. But it was it was really great because you know they 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 cared about and they they took out and they tried to you know encapsulate the different little elements of the of the five dragons. So it was it was awesome to see them play out. But we didn't like for example we that that trailer came in very hot. Uh, it was you know last week they were just getting the final things. So it was, a lot of times we were just looking at, like the storyboards and like one just. Like, the blue dragon section of it so we didn't really see much of the final stuff until you know maybe a week before the fans got to see it because that they, they, they started that work fairly close to the deadline and just got <laughs> it finished in time for uh dnd direct 
Well, we know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned chromatic dragons. Is this the first time that players get to fight chromatic dragons? In We've had chromatic dragons in Neverwinter for a while. They came in relatively early. Neverwinter's uh, coming up on, say, 10 years old. And I think it was within the first year or two that the, the chromatic dragons showed up. But uh, they've always been in, in a somewhat limited standpoint. We've had a couple of cool boss fights against uh, various dragons and some of our and some of our dungeons. But we haven't ever really encapsulated a lot of the variety of what dragons can do Um a lot of times video games can't easily encompass as much of what, so for example, like monsters can do in, in D&D paper. Like dragons have a whole list of different spells they can cast apart from their claw attacks, breath attacks, bite attacks, etc. There's a number of different powers that dragons have that's always been difficult. And with Dragon Slayer in particular leading into it, we've actually been revamping the dragons very heavily uh, within Neverwinter. We've been adding a lot more powers. They can do things like opposed to just using their breath attacks and sort of uh, physical attacks. They can now actually cast spells, various different mm. spells that, you know, uh, wizards and such can cast now as well. So while you're fighting them, they may throw down like incendiary clouds or other things along those mm. lines. So you have to deal with a lot more complexity in their attacks and we've made them much more uh, interesting challenges. So as before they were, you know, pretty intimidating and very, very cool. We, we liked them, but they didn't have the the depth that is that is really found in, in especially in fifth edition and, and, and in the tabletop games. So we spent a lot of time adding specific depth to just the dragon type enemies and making them more interesting and unique. And then separately from that, you know, like we added a lot more uniqueness whereas before is like the main differentiator between the dragons was oftentimes their breath attacks you know the red dragons breathe fire white dragons uh, breathe ice but all the new all the spells and new powers that we've added for dragon slayer are also themed like the white dragons have you know the different uh, spells that they cast than the red dragons different from the green dragons etc so there's more personality and uniqueness to each of the dragon uh, each of the five chromatic dragon types as well as personality right so how mm-hmm. uh, how did uh are the dragons voiceovers were that were those fun sessions that you had to do in order to be like oh you're our iconic those aren't dragon. done yet i've actually heard just the first rounds of audio and our our audio director michael henry's uh, really cool and he's been having fun going through and looking at different modulations and processing effects for each of the the five different dragons he seems to be pretty fond of the white so i can't wait to hear the final versions but literally we just got the raw vo in and he's going through now and having putting some of those ready so the module's not out for another month and vo is usually one of the last things that we do simply because Mm, it's the one you know you want to record your audio at the, as close to the end as possible in order to ensure that there's not a whole lot of other changes that was like, hey, well, oops, we wanted to change this line because we changed the gameplay around it, et cetera. So we often try to record in the last 20% or so of a module's development, and that's about the stage that we're at right now. I love it. White dragons are typically uh, less intelligent than their yeah. brethren, right? So that's got to be fun to be the uh, the big, beefy white dragon in the room. Yeah, they're 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 pretty angry. They're uh they're definitely some more of the more I would uh you know in your face, uh, very very savage style creatures. So we're trying to we're trying to capture that in the writing. Our our writer, you know, she uh she cares a lot about the expressing the different personalities of it. It's kind of tough, especially because some of the ones are more uh, machination driven, like the green dragons, etc. That's a little bit sometimes harder to convey. Whereas the white dragon savagery and sort of the the red dragons are somewhat similar kind of vein as as well come across maybe. But the, the blacks and greens in particular, in some degree, the blues uh were were a bit tougher. But hopefully it'll come across well that you be able to you know hear the different personality types. Um, but they sound at least even the, even the old dragons that we had in the game sounded really cool so i'm hoping that we've got way more audio i think we I think we quintupled the amount of unique uh, vo if not more for each wow. of the different chromatic dragon types yeah it's, it's a substantial expansion and 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 to the, the amount of vo that we had for the dragons 
And there are different yeah. age groups too, right? So it's not just the big ancient dragon that you'd be fighting. You could be potentially running into dragons at lower levels, right? Yeah, we we didn't previously like really clearly separate like you know in terms of like what is a young dragon, what is an adult dragon, what's an ancient dragon, etc. Um, you know, you could tell by some of the fights that some of them were much tougher than others. You think, like, oh, that's probably an older blue dragon, but we didn't have as many visual uniquenesses. We didn't have as many uh, ob- things drawing attention to that. So with Dragon Slaughter, we kind of wanted to address that and say like, hey, no, yeah, dragons live a very long time, and they have very radically different sort of levels of power uh, and 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 sort of like what they can do uh, during fights and and how big they are even and whatnot. And so now the ancient dragons are substantially more challenging. They have substantially more unique abilities and they act and engage with you a lot differently than a young blue dragon would. Um, So the ancient, for the example, the ancient dragons are are something that are generally targeted by uh, targeted more at like full groups and you need like entire party of players to deal with them. Whereas some of the younger dragons, especially if you're well-equipped, you could potentially um, even fight solo. So the different age groups, you know, reflect different levels of challenge. It depends obviously on, on the quality of your gear and how much stuff you have, et cetera, but uh, a lot easier to handle. And then the ancient dragons are much more complex and much more challenging. Do you, so obviously a, a video game and a, Tabletop game are different mediums. They're, but how much of your, like, like did you crack open an early copy of Fizzbands when you were developing all of this content? Like, how much of what you implement into Neverwinter comes from? is informed by what's actually being published. We actually did get a chance. We got, you know, Watts usually gives us like early advanced copies um, as the uh, various things get closer to being uh, finished. So we took a, a cracked it open. And some of the things that we did reference, I can't get into too much without spoiling some things, but we try to yeah. look at and say like, hey, what are, we, what are they doing with Fizzman's? You know, what are some of the things that they're trying to emphasize as far as the uniqueness of each of the different, uh, especially chromatic dragons and whatnot. And, and how much of that can we actually import into the game? And it's always a tough sell because, you know, we, we can't ever do a one-to-one. You know, actually, Neverwinter, for example, even started on fourth edition. It was originally a fourth edition D&D game. And as fifth edition came along, um, you know, we had to do some basically updates and retrofits to make it fall more in line with how fifth edition would play out. Some of the various, like, even class names, for example, were updated along those lines. So it took us a, a bit to get to this. We can never be one-to-one. The the sort of, like, tabletop medium for D&D often advances much faster than even we can. Like, in, you know, Watson might be, cool, we're going to do something, you know, in this setting here, you know, in late, 20, uh, like, 22, and we're like, wow, okay, it'll take us, like, a year plus to be, to get everything uh, implemented, to follow that up, et cetera. So there's usually a little yeah. bit of lag time. The more, that's why the more leeway they give us when they tell us about what they're working on, some of their ideas, the easier for us is just for, like, time or release around the time that it comes out, because video game development is slow. Um, not to say that, like, writing a new book or writing a new module components, et is fast, but video game development is even slower than than the tabletop development, and so we generally have a little bit of a lag time. We try to you know stay ahead of it, but uh, as much as we can, we try to like look at fist pens. And then the, the translation, like I said, it just depends on what we think we can make work. Uh, I kind of talked about how the job is sort of like looking at what we want to do, what we can do, and how much time we have to do. And we had to make a lot of decisions in that when we look through any of the the Watsi source materials or any of the D and D reference. You know, you know, we've, we've talked about, for example, even just adding classes. Like we don't have the druid and the monk in Neverwinter right now. We've talked about what it would take t- to get that. But it's adding new classes is is very complex. It takes a lot of effort to make sure that they work well, play right, et cetera. The most recent class we had was the Bard, and we spent a lot of time tweaking the Bard ever since it was released, trying to make sure that it's uh, it, it holds up and, and and plays well and functions well in groups alongside the other ones. We just recently put out a bunch of improvements to the Bard because we found that, especially at Endgame, it needed uh, more help there. And so before we jump into like Druid or Monk, we want to make sure that we're at a, a pretty solid 
spot with all the other classes. So it's a lot of work. Yeah. Do you think, it, does it ever go the other way? Do you think ever uh, your work on Neverwinter has informed, you know, the Dungeon Masters or your games, right? If you're like, oh, I've got this really great raid, uh, or, or, you know, I guess it's called Trials in Neverwinter that you're working on. Like, can, yeah. can we can we play this on the, on the table uh, with, with five other people and see if we can I, tweak I it? imagine that there's probably been people that have, you know, stolen from Neverwinter in a lot of cases for their tabletop experiences. And by all means, go right ahead. If there's any part of Neverwinter that you think is really cool, uh, whether it's a, a dungeon, a trial, any, any, any setting that we've used, et cetera. You know, sometimes we, we also, you know, we plan like we did, like, you know, we, we've done modules that, you know, themed after ones like Storm King's Thunder, et cetera, whatnot too. But, uh, you know, our interpretation of the module oftentimes varies from what other people might have done on the tabletop or even what Watsi had and some of their stories and whatnot. And if, but if you like our stuff better, go ahead and use it. Like if you like some of the components that we picked out for Storm King's Thunder, uh, sure, certainly go ahead and use that one. Uh, I know that within a lot of people play D&D on the Neverwinter team and they've used bits and pieces of it from as well. Though since they're, they work on the game, they don't want to like just wholesale copy stuff out because it's like, hey, we just kind of played this. Let's, you know, do something different. It's it, it's you don't want to necessarily just re- rehash the same thing that you're that you work on and see every day when you when a, when you're playing D and D sort of like for your you know for your enjoyment and as your hobby as opposed to just what you're doing you know as your job. I guess that makes sense, right? You don't want to necessarily take ho- work home with you all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're still playing D and D. It's just like cool. I'm gonna work on this D and D video game, and then over lunch we're gonna sit down and we're gonna play D and D. The exact so same it, encounter that, that, I was that, that just happens, testing. They want to vary things up a little bit. You know, it's you need a, the, the whole point there is a little bit of escapism. You know, yeah. it's and it's fun to be like you know, it's fun not to have the constraints of a video game where you can be more blue ocean. You can you know, it's a lot easier to talk about stuff and craft things with your imagination than it is to craft it with with game engines. <laughs> oh, for sure. Do you still find joy in playing video games now that you're so fully entrenched in the making of video games? Absolutely. I, and I think that's something that, you know, if you ever are in the video game industry and you find yourself not wanting to play video games because you're burnt out, um, it's tough to keep working in the space when you get to that point. And for me, you know, I've, I've continued to play video games my whole life. I didn't know if I would get burnt on it, but I have noticed, for example, a lot of times when I'm working on a game of a specific genre, I often don't play a lot of other games in that genre mm. unless I know I'm doing it for competitive research. Like for a number of years, I worked on shooter games and it was really hard for me to jump in and just enjoy them without sitting there and analyzing everything that they were doing and trying to basically doing professional critique and analysis of why they did X and why they did Y. So I had to play games in other genres like RPGs or other things like that too, which is something that I wasn't working on so that I could just kind of more focus on relaxing and enjoying it. And so, for example, like I played Neverwinter a bunch. Uh, so I, I generally don't play other MMORPGs in my spare time. I try to drift in and play other genres and whatnot when I'm just trying to you know, relax and, and have fun. That way I'm not caught up in the cycle of trying to do competitive analysis and all those sorts of things. That's so funny. I mean, not to always yeah. bring it back to theater or, or film or things like that, but when I was producing that stuff, it was hard for me to go to shows because I'd constantly be like, oh, yeah, that yeah. lighting's off or oh, that could have been, you know, a better thing to do, right? Yeah. It's hard to turn you know off. too much. The professional side of it gets in the way of just having fun. Every time. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you, uh, so uh, are, are you playing anything now? Like, what's your, what's your, uh, 
way to relax and have some escapism yeah. when you're not outside of and like I said, I still play Neverwinter basically every day just to make sure that I'm always kind of understanding what the players are going through. But then outside of that, uh, two games that I played most recently is a small little indie game on PC called Vampire Survivors. Mm. It uh, I love is people a, have been talking about that a lot. And it is a industry. weird sort of rogue like I don't know pseudo bullet hell. It costs like two dollars. It's an early access, but it's a blast. If you haven't tried it, I recommend it. You basically it's it's thematically sort of a ripoff of Castlevania and you have a character that walks around and monsters basically fly at you and try to kill you and then you pick up different weapons to try to kill them and all you the whole goal is only just to survive for 30 minutes and you know at 30 minutes it, the, the you basically get killed and it, and it and it ends but you unlock new characters you unlock new weapons as you play um you get more powerful and early on like it's hard to survive even like five minutes sometimes 10 minutes and then as you get more powerful and find out new stuff you can work your way up and then you find a bunch of new characters it's a very simple very relaxing kind of game you can just sit down and play for a little bit when you have a few minutes and uh it's a lot of fun there's a lot of different cool weapons and it's slightly randomized so you don't get the same experience every single time but i recommend it it's it's like it's only a few dollars on steams and it's and it's a blast it's, it's exploded in popular a lot of streamers caught on started playing it and then word of mouth got out and then a bunch of people jumped into it and then the second game that i've been playing is a bit more mainstream uh, on consoles i've been playing elden ring so uh-huh. i jumped in and i've got a i think over 100 hours now in elden ring it's a surprisingly long game i uh, compared to From Software's other games, which are oftentimes only like 30 to 50 hours, Elden Ring has easily surpassed that by two to three times now for me. And it just, I'm kind of surprised that they they made a game so huge and so big. I, I felt like they probably could have edited it down and kind of starting to feel like it's running a bit long. It's like a movie that's like three hours and you're like, they could have shaved another 25 minutes or so out of this. And I kind of feel a little bit out of the way Elden Ring where it's like, they, I think they could have been a little bit more judicious on the editing and and it focused on, 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 this, on the good parts. But but I'm enjoying it. It's it's both fantastically fun and fantastically frustrating. It's got a lot of good praise. I don't know if I would give it like some, it's got a Metacritic of like 95 or something right now. And having played it myself, I'm like, it's very good in some areas and very bad in some others. And it's hard for me to like rate a game that's that polarizing uh, as something like a 90. Like something usually has to have like pretty consistent success. Um, whereas like with Elden Ring, there's been times where like, this is amazing when it's absolutely fantastic. Other times I've been like, this is frustrating as hell. And the developers are, who did this one component of it are, are idiots. And so working <laughs> in video games too, I that's maybe that's, that's part of that's me. Though. That's it's where your like, critical you know, head comes you know, in, right? You're you like, know, ah. I've, I've had to build sometimes, I'm, even though I'm not working currently on RPGs or things like too, I've had to build like, you know, combat systems and stuff too. So when, you know, I encounter a bug in Elden Ring's combat system, I'm like, oh, come on. Like, this is a core action. Why is it do like this? I can go into like tons of details, like talking about how they, how they queue actions up. Like if you get hit while you're inputting a button, it lets you get hit. And then it performs the action after you, after the, your hit animation plays. And I'm like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> There's absolutely no reason why this, why that mechanic should be like that in this game. So, it's well, just shots a, fired uh, for all the, the <laughs> right, Elden yeah. Ring fans. Elden Ring developers, uh, fight me if you want to. We can get into a long discussion about uh, hit reactions and queuing inputs because that's something that I've worked on a lot. And that's not to say that Elden Ring is terrible, but they have a few areas where I think that they that they that, that probably yeah. probably not intentionally. It's more like, hey, look, they have a system, and it's it's you know it's not easy to. I, those systems are extremely complex, so I don't uh, I don't sit there and without you know inside knowledge knowing that all oh, these are simple problems to solve. Some of them are very difficult, but it's an area that affects so much of the game. I'm like, man, I it's hard for me to think of that that game is being rated like 90 plus when there are some very basic <laughs> controls issues sometimes. From like oh. this is very frustrating, and I don't think a game that's rated 90 plus should have this level of frustration just in controls. What I love about what you just uh, you know touched on by mentioning those two games though is that it's it's something that I think is really important for dungeon masters and people running tabletop to think about as well. 
which is a uh, uh, play your time investment, right? Like you can certainly create a really fun experience that you were mentioning with the with the vampire simulator game that's designed for you know five to thirty minutes, right? And that's like something that's really um, important in the roguelike uh, kind of genre, right? And then there's also this thing for especially RPG computer games, but also long form D and D campaigns where it's like the number of hours. And the slog, and the, and 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 having to feel like you've accomplished something and, and done something because of the amount of hours that you've put into it, um, but it's still a complete finite experience. And then MMO RPGs, which are, you know really are all about trying to almost like create like a second life, like a like a like a lifestyle. This is yeah. the game that I'm going to be playing. They're often called said. lifestyle games. Yeah, for ten years, right? Like people, there's people who have been playing Neverwinter for for the, for a decade, yep. uh, or, or soon to be. A there's decade, still people right? played the original EverQuest, even yeah. EverQuest One still has still people playing it. it from. I think it's '98. I don't want to remember when EverQuest One came out. Yeah, and then I think of the you know the D and D campaign. Uh, we we've talked to a couple of times where it's been forty years of this exact same campaign, the long form story that's been going on. So like, yeah, what are your thoughts on how? designers as well as 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 dungeon masters should really kind of think about how they're they're creating their stories like should it always be open-ended should you think about things in a more bite-sized way so that they're more digestible for for fans you know the difference between a one-shot versus a long-time campaign like yeah what do you think about that i think you have to kind of understand it 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 depends on your audience and for example like i mentioned like vampire survivors versus neverwinter or something like elden ring that they target people that are looking for different experiences you know Mm -hmm. i've also worked on shooters and some shooters are you have a very sort of like popcorn experience where you can jump in and play for 20 minutes do a a couple of multiplayer matches and then get out and then other people want to play like you know a campaign that lasts for 20 hours and whatnot so you kind of have to understand like you know what are the people that i want uh and what what does my audience want you know if you're if you're you're, say a, a dm and you're trying to run a campaign you kind of understand like are these people that want to routinely engage this is a close-knit circle of friends that you know we can reliably get together and we can play for years or is this just something that, you know we want to try something fun and different and do like maybe something unique that is more of a one-shot or maybe just you know a couple shots like a, a mini series basically and I, i've done all those as well i've done longer campaigns i've done mini series where we just did like you know six adventures and that was it and then you know threw the characters away and never used them again and those were still fantastically fun but it was a different kind of experience so you have to understand like cool you know you know for, for a lot of people at least for me when I, when I've done longer term DD campaigns, it was a lot about the people. It was like, okay, we have a cool social group. We like hanging out with each other. Um, and D and D is a way for us to bond and spend time with each other and have fun and get a chance to do this longer tail experience. Whereas sometimes if I'm playing with people, I don't know as well, like a shorter format thing is great. Cause I can get in, I can find out if I like the people or not. And then if I do, and maybe it'll then grow into something like maybe with the mini series will become a, a forever series or something along those lines. But I think it's easier in general, both with video games and with even like tabletop experiences just make sure you you know you you don't feel like someone has to commit to something super long to get any value out of it you know that's one of the downsides of something like elden rings if you aren't willing to commit 100 plus hours you may never see the ending you may have some fun playing it but uh you may miss out on the payoff sort of by by getting through the the end of the story whereas if you're you know doing something like vampire survivors like you're pretty much guaranteed it's not going to be as big a payoff but you're guaranteed that so if you can find a way to get people hooked and get them early in make sure that they're just having fun and they're not focused on having to worry about like will i ever get to the end that sort of thing um and you can find ways to gradually extend it that's the best kind of experiences you can get and a lot of really successful ones are ones that you go in and you start having fun immediately and you're just not worried about it as long as you're enjoying it you keep playing and then you find out like oh my god i spent like 200 hours playing this that was you know 
back in the early days of of online games. Like I, my background right now is the original Neverwinter Nights from AOL, um, and yeah. you know I, I got into playing that, and then I found out, whole, you know, holy crap, I spent hundreds of hours playing this. And at the time, I had never really spent that long. Most video games were not long back in 1996. They, you generally just didn't play games for that long. But I ended up playing Neverwinter Nights for a, a huge amount of time. But it wasn't. I didn't think that when I went into the game that I was going to do that. I thought, well, cool, I'll just play this. You know, I played tons of other D and D video games even at that time, and then maybe I'll play it for like 10 to 30 hours or something like that too. And then hundreds of hours in, I'm like, what happened? <laughs> you know, and that was, it was a good, what happened. That wasn't a bad, I was just like, man, I've been really enjoying this. I didn't think I would play a game for this long. And that's, I think when, you know, everyone kind of had a simultaneous understanding, especially with like MMOs realizing that they had that kind of staying power. Um, if you, but it, it does very much matter on like, you know, did you have fun when you first got in? And we, we do see that, you know, we look at numbers for Neverwinter and, you know, people who have the most amount of fun and really enjoy those first couple hours, the people who are likely to end up sticking around for hundreds of hours too. Mm. I'll say long story short, just make sure they have fun in the first few hours and then, you know, worry about the length afterwards. You know, you can have a long overarching meta arc, but just make sure that they can enjoy themselves, you know, in, in the first in the you know, hours to, you know, one to 10 hours. And and if they like that, then they're, they're likely to come back for the much longer story. Yeah. And, uh, and there's something that is a thread line there where you're talking about player feedback, right? Where, where it's important, I mean, you know, to have that feedback early with a session zero. Sorry, I'm out of focus. Uh, <laughs> With a session zero, trying to be like, all right, this is the game that we're going to be playing. Like this is this is the 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 length of time that we're thinking about. It can always be extended, but you know, here we're are, we're committing to six sessions or just one session or whatever it is, right? And having that communication happening. Um, but then for an MMORPG, you know, you really do have to have that dialogue with your players and making sure that those people who are already bought in, who are you know thinking this is a lifestyle, that they feel like they have a. Um, you know, a mouthpiece, which was something you said earlier was one of your kind of duties as being the EP was was to uh, kind of, you know, be the translator of like what the players want. Yep. And then that's something, you know, I, I'm we're working on. And it's not just me. Like we, we, my goal is, especially with Neverwinter, to ensure that we have multiple people within the Neverwinter team that, based on their areas of expertise and what they're working on, can engage with the community just directly and say, hey, we're thinking about doing X and this is some stuff we're proposing. Maybe put it up on our preview servers or whatnot. And then actually get the direct feedback where they're like, hey, that's great. Or, hey, that's terrible. Uh, and then we just have to react to that and be like, okay, why do they think it's terrible? And then work through those issues and, and understand, make sure that we always appreciate why they're saying stuff is terrible. You know, with, with players, they're not video game developers. Some of them are very close to it. And sometimes, you know, you're actually talking to people who hmm. are video game developers and it's like, hmm, that's very specific information. This guy must work in either software or video games. But a lot of people are just like, <laughs> the, they won't give you anything more specific than this was boring or this was great. And you kind of have to figure out how to, you know, deduce from that what it is they liked about it and how to be, and, and, and then well, understand what they're, what, what they mean as opposed to necessarily what they're saying. And that's not always an easy job. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's a, it's a big pain. Sometimes people, will hate something or just find it boring and you're like why why isn't this working <laughs> i'm shocked like what do you mean they only say mm, it's boring i feel like yeah. you ask any D D player for feedback they will really give you feedback oh, yeah, very no, detailed th feedback th there's there's very like you know you, you have different kinds of audiences and we and the type of feedback we get the most useful is usually from the very dedicated players the people that are yeah. really into it that you know that whether it's never winter or deemed the case may be like the people who are really into it can give you very explicit feedback you know they, they're, they're kind of used to that um but the people that are all we, you know Neverwinter has a mix we have a mix of yeah. people that are just they, they log in every day for like 30 minutes because they want to fight some monsters and get some loot 
And they're just going to tell you like, hey, that was fun or hey, that wasn't. And then we have the people that play for like two hours a day that will right. go in and say like, this class is not as fun as it should be because these three things are bad about it. And here's hmm. suggestions on how you could fix it. And we're like, great, that is great feedback. We'll look at that and make sure it lines up. But we, we always have to make sure, you know, that the, 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 the changes we make don't alienate either of those audiences. The guy who plays for two hours a day and knows everything about their class versus the guy that just plays for 30 minutes a day and is trying to have fun. You know, we don't want to try to appease one and, and upset the other in terms of like, you know, we can make mechanics too complex. And then the guy who's playing for 30 minutes is like, I don't understand what this does. Like, yeah. I don't have 10 hours to sit down and analyze. I'm sure that maybe that's a fun experience for somebody that has the time and really loves the, the detail mechanics, but he doesn't want to necessarily have to do that analysis just to enjoy the class. So it's a balancing game that we always have to try to, to try to play. And it, that's not just specific to Neverwinter. All video games um, go through that where you're trying to, you know, balance the initial fun versus making sure there's something that keeps people excited at hour 10. And then uh, going back to the question earlier, it's the same kind of problem you'll have with like a, you know, a D&D tabletop experience. Like, yeah, you know, th there's a level of novelty and newness that's always great. It makes it really easy to get people sucked in. But, you know, can you also make sure that they're still having fun, you know, 10, 20 plus hours later? And I think that both with tabletop games and with MMOs, the social experience helps with that a lot too. The, you know, the more you bond and interact with other people, um, you know, they start to make the experience more fun for you and you start to enjoy uh, being with them. And then the game or the, what's the video game or tabletop game winds up being the medium in which you sort of have fun with with other people yeah yeah that is how mmos kind of do emulate that friend group right where you have uh people that you're playing with and they're the ones who make the fun right and so yep. it, that's why i love the social aspect of it it's very similar to like a weekly game night or, or something like that and mmos are a little bit weird because a lot of times you know people play them that they don't have some of them times they'll have friends in real life that play with them and sometimes they just go on and they meet people they meet strangers and they form new social groups online there's people that i've met that i played mmos with that i've never met in real life but i i have like their phone numbers my phone i can call them if i need to or, or, or whatnot and you so that's formed a, little bit a company yeah. you formed a company yeah. with strangers that you met yeah online. that's that, that happens so <laughs> i don't know maybe that's just me like it didn't ever bother me some people maybe they just want to meet people in real life i'm like oh well, you know not really like i'm used to meeting people <laughs> online playing games with them and if i have fun with them cool and yeah I'll hang out with them. But I think like tabletop is, you know, you you might put out like an audition or a request like, hey, we're looking for D&D players to come along. But a lot of times I, th I find that most people who engage in, in especially the longer term tabletops wind up at least having a, a cadre of people that they knew prior to starting the tabletop. Um, most of them, you know, there's like a seed group usually, and there might be a couple people that get added in or, or changed out over time. But there's usually like a seed of people you know. Whereas a lot of times I play MMOs and I don't know anybody else that's playing it. Uh, and that's fine for me. And I'll go in and I'll meet strangers and find new guilds or, or clans or whatever online and, and join up and meet a whole bunch of new people that also enjoy playing the game. Yeah, and I think if if you're playing with someone and you like playing with that person, I this is based on nothing factual. This is just instinct. But I'm going to bet that that person is probably a good person also in real life. The, it's not true vice versa. Somebody can be very nice in real life and fun to hang out with and then just not great. At the D and D table, I won't name names, <laughs> but he might be in this house right now. Oh, <laughs> wow. the real side of him comes out <laughs> once or twice. We've had I have had to like just stare down my husband, like, "What are you doing? <laughs> I don't like the side of you at all. <laughs> Pick <Yeah>. that up." <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes video games, tabletop games, or even just being on the internet is a chance for people, yeah. you know, to 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 let loose. And some people, you know, the way they act online is 
not a reflection uh, for the for the worse of, of how you know how they would act in, in real life. But but for me, like I've always and from an early age, I kind of realized on you know when I because I was online a bunch, I guess early on, I was just like you know, hey, I I should probably act online how I would in real life, uh, you know, and did not try to make a a false persona or use it as an opportunity to vent. Like I need healthy outlets for rage and anger and whatnot that hopefully you know aren't aren't strangers on the internet that I want to take it out on sort of thing. And whatnot. So I try to like uh, try to work it out. And that's what some of the video games I play. Like some of the video games are just outlets. You know, it's it's fine for me to uh, get that get that angst out of my system playing yeah. video games, so that I that I don't direct it towards other people. But you know, being blunt, like when I when I played video games when I was younger, like man, when I was playing like competitive games online, the teams like that was that was tense, and there was a lot of toxicity with that. But it taught me a good lesson because people told me it was like, hey, stop being so toxic. I'm like, you're right, I am being toxic. That's terrible. Mm. I shouldn't do that. Uh, and then you know, got old, got got a got over it and grew out of it, especially as I got older. That was back when I was like 20. So it was a good number of years ago now at this point, but it, it took a while for me to kind of realize that it wasn't like a lesson that was apparent. It was just something that, you know, I talked with people, they were like, Hey, you're toxic. I'm like, Oh crap, you're right. There is toxicity there. I, that's, that's not great. I shouldn't yell, even though we're, you know, playing this serious competitive game at a, at a high level and, you know, that's not an excuse, uh, you know, but it, that, that, that problem runs afoul even in like professional sports in a lot of other places. There's a lot of toxic people, even in pro sports and whatnot that, you know, when they get in these tense situations, get very angsty and, and express their feelings very poorly. So it's something that I think that until you're in the moment, you don't even realize it sometimes about yourself. You know, I, I played a lot of super competitive sports as a kid. I played sports, but usually it was like recreational stuff. And then when I started playing video games super competitively, I was like, wow, I, I get way more into this and caught up into it than I realized. That's something that I've got to work on. It's not something I've ever had to deal with before. But once I realized, I'm like, oh, yeah. That's, I'm getting way too involved in this one, and I gotta I gotta learn to let some stuff go while still still trying to still trying to win. Right. It's that fine line between motivation and assholery, right? Like if, <laughs> if you watch that, uh, that that Michael Jordan documentary uh, that came out a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, where he's like, "Yep," and I took that personally, and that fueled all of the the amazing feats that he was able to do on the basketball court was from you know you could argue a toxic place. Um, but he was able to to achieve all these great things, and it's like, how do you balance that? How do you find that uh, happening? And, and that must be very true in an online game like like Neverwinter, where you know you you're you're getting feedback from from various levels of of anger to praise, uh, and so yeah, how do how do you parse that? How do you work with your community managers in order to to find the nuggets of of truth within you know some some things that might not be uh, you know yeah. what you would want to read all the time. For, for people that interact with the community, there's a little bit of training and a little bit of work that we have to do to make sure that they know that they need to have thick skins. You know, sometimes players will be happy and they'll shower you with love and praise and it's a great feeling. And other times they'll be upset and they will let you know when they're upset. They will let you know um, sometimes in no explicit terms how terrible a person you are uh, and and yell at you in online forums or in Discord or chats or other things like that. And you need to understand, you know, to, to look past that and try to understand. And what I always try to say is that, you know, I, you can look at it as a doctor-patient kind of model where the uh, players are sometimes the patients and you're the doctor and the players may come in and say something like, hey, I've got a headache. And they're like, and then you're like, okay. And then it's like, and it's probably brain cancer. She should start giving me chemotherapy. And you know, as a doctor, as a developer, Helper slash doctor, you got to be like, hey, I believe that you have a headache, but let's pa- let's you know pump the brakes a bit on the whole brain cancer 
chemotherapy thing until we figure out perhaps what might be this. Because it, it might legitimately be brain cancer or it just might be that you have a sinus infection that needs some antibiotics. You know, um, And so as a developer, your job is to be the doctor there, is to listen to the symptoms, um, accept that when the players tell you stuff that they're not probably lying because they're generally not doing it for their own benefit, um, but they might be slightly mistargeted or misguided at times. And it's your job to kind of like uh, retarget and figure out what their real root cause is. And especially if they suggest, you know, sometimes they won't even tell you, it's just like, you know, I've got a, then sometimes they won't even say, I've got a headache. They'll just come in and say like, I need chemotherapy. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And you have to reverse engineer back to, oh, they have a headache and they think it's brain cancer. Therefore, they think they need chemotherapy, but they didn't just come in and tell you that they had a headache. And so it's, it's, there's sometimes a little bit of puzzle solving there when you deal with the community, when you try to figure out what the real issue is. Um, and, and sometimes they're correct. You know, sometimes you'll get a person that's, that's exactly correct. It's like, wow, it turns out they did have brain cancer. Wow. And they, they knew exactly what they needed, but a lot of times it's not that. And so you, you have to accept that both those are, are possible outcomes and just kind of deal with it with patients and, and, you know, and, not try to get too personally involved in it. You know, that's that this mistake that some developers I've seen make is where they get personally attached to a specific feature or something that they built and then the community trashes it and then they get into flame wars with them. It's like, no, no, you can't do that. They're yeah. A, your customers and B, you know, your, your goal is to, it's an entertainment issue. Your goal is to entertain them and, and, and making people angry often has the reverse effect unless your game is about making people angry for some reason, which I think some people will argue that's what Elden Ring's goal is. <laughs> or other from software. <laughs> to ride that frustration wave. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, everything you're talking about there is also very true for Dungeon Masters, right? Like you have to accept feedback from your players. The ultimate goal is to uh, create a good experience for as many people around the table as you can and to understand that, you know, anything that that is said is 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 meant for, you know, the entire group to try to try to have a, a fun experience, but it can be hard to parse exactly what that is, and that's why open communication is always really really yes. important. And it's yep. responsible the responsibility of the players too to also give good constructive feedback and not be toxic and not just be shouting into the void. Yeah, yep. be, don't be twenty year old sorry. Brett. Be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. be, be grown up. Be today's up Brett. Brett. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is exactly. all amazing stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk through uh, what's going to be happening with the Dragon Slayer module that's coming to Neverwinter. What's what's the exact date that that's going to be able to be available for people on PC? I want to say June 14th, if I remember my, my days correctly. Yeah, that should be it, June 14th. So. Very exciting. Uh, yep. Well, if you haven't jumped into um, Neverwinter in a long time, I definitely suggest doing so. The, the early player experience has been revamped and it's super fun. Uh, those first few hours that you were mentioning is uh, going to get anybody who is excited about um, that type of MMO con- content in a uh, uh, with, with all with all the lore that goes on with D and D and Neverwinter. So test it out and then be ready for Dragon Slayer when it drops in June. Well, thanks, Brett. If people want to get in touch with you or find out anything that you're doing, do you have a, a an online presence on on Twitter or anything like that? Uh, nothing really social media wise. I'll get one if people really want me to. I kind of have been lying <laughs> low. So, um, but we have a, our, our community manager for Neverwinter generally fields all kinds of comments. Uh, that's Julia. And you can actually just, you know, the Neverwinter official sort of uh, the Twitter account can handle a lot of the commentary and stuff like that too. So Julia is pretty good about parsing all the incoming feedback that we've got and sort of directing discussions. And so if there's something that I need to answer, she's like, hey, Brett, you need to, you know, respond to this or talk about this, et cetera. So. Yeah, definitely. Shout out to uh, Julia Hendrickson, right? That's her name? Uh, Fredrickson, I think. Fredrickson, yes. Yeah. Uh, Julia is amazing. She's done wonderful work uh, managing that community for a long time and uh, uh, is very receptive to feedback. So make it happen. Yep. 
And, awesome. I, and I've been doing like separate streams, like directly with like the Neverwinter fan bases and stuff. And I'll be doing more of those. So anyone listening and it's wondering, like I'm going to be keeping it up. So you guys will hear more from me and I'll try to do one at least roughly every couple of months or roughly about when we're working on new modules and have some stuff to update. That's awesome. Excellent. All right, well, thanks good. again, Brett. And uh, I'll, we'll let you get back to work making Neverwinter awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure. Us too. Wow, what an amazing career Brett has had, as well as just a, you know, he's leveled up in so many ways. Good insights. I love it. I love the way that that he interacts with the community and just the way that he parses out feedback and just all the ways that they're making Neverwinter great. Yeah, it's really, it's really great. Um, So check it out if you can. Uh, It is worthwhile. And then you got dragons getting revamped uh, in June, uh, which everyone loves fighting dragons. Except for Yeah. Mm, I just, I don't know. Not young ones. I'm, I can't, can't hurt a young dragon. What about a baby dragon? Never. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to raise that dragon uh, to be my friend. I know I have bunnies that make their nest in our hillside in our backyard. I yeah. know I do. Because, like, why wouldn't you? It's covered, it's tons of bramble and trees and... Yeah. But it's like it neat it's very overgrown and I won't let the lawn people or anyone touch it because like what if you hit a nest? I I, I have to be sure that like the bunnies have are out of the nest and gone before I let anybody in there. We saw a baby bunny in our backyard. You did. It was so cute. And we literally like all four of us were just like eh, I would die for him. <laughs> <laughs> It was so tiny. I could just picture you. Yes. And it was adorable. So it's somebody's baby. Yeah. Yeah. What about your cats, though? Don't your cats eat? First of all, I only ever had one. Oh. And second of all, she died. Did you not know that? (laughs) I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten. I'm thinking of my uh, the reason why I say this is because I have uh, one of my old neighbors had two cats and they. She would just constantly tell stories of them murdering bunnies, and, and no, I don't. Sometimes she would try to bring them back to life unsuccessfully. Like it was just an awful. She's not a no. She's not, she's not a cleric or a witch. She would just try to nurse them, <laughs> uh, and it never really worked. Um, Resurrect them. You you could bring them to the pet oh. cemetery, and you know, <laughs> see what see what happens. Just try your luck. Who Lich knows? Bunnies for everyone. <laughs> Um. Yeah. No. I. I don't think my cat would have done that when she was alive because she was rather lazy, mean but lazy. So, if 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 the opportunity presented itself, she'd be like, mm, "I'll get to it next week." Yeah, she would just be like, "I'm not getting up." Yeah, you live sense. another day, baby bunny. <laughs> but I'm watching you, kind of. Yes, a little bit. she would. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Zini was her name, right? Yes. Yes. Zelda, but we called her Zini. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah. Aww. Yeah, she's dead now, so thanks. <laughs> it's my fault. You're going to blame that on me, and that's that's valid. Uh, we have had many conversations about cats that have passed away on Dragon Talk, but you listeners, we have, <laughs> we have spared. That gets edited out usually. We have spared you all from having to hear sad stories about people. I don't know what it is, but they find comfort in Greg and I. And they open up most interviews with, my cat died. <laughs> it's, it's, it's happened not a small amount of times. No. Uh, it is true. So. Yeah. We'll put that in uh, Welcome to Dragon Talk 2. 
Yes, there we go. Yeah. Outtakes. You'll hear all the outtakes. No, we're never showing any of those outtakes. <laughs> no. And I know we have to always be very, very nice to Ryan because he holds a lot of truths in his... He does. He it's knows. True. We've been he, recording. He literally it. knows where the, the cats are buried. <laughs> and the, the skeletons. <laughs> all of our skeletons in our <laughs> closets. The bad raps and the bad singing and the bad uh, videos. and the. Well, what about all the good singing? Oh, that's... You get to we that. obviously leave that in. I'm a taste free. Right. Jack and uh, I. Okay. okay. We are excited uh, for all of the fun things that are going on with Dungeons Dragons, including uh, the Magic the Gathering, Commander, Legends, Battle for Baldur's Gate. You'll see some familiar faces in that set, including uh, <gasps> things gonna, I can't say. I'm not going to say no, them because I'm no, going to say no, them next no, week. No, no. You'll get them all there, but they might rhyme with. No, no, stop. With goo. No, just kidding. You uh, will have to tune move. in next uh, week with our conversation uh, uh, with Corey Bowen all about that. I will. In the meantime, follow everything that's going on with D&D. Go to DungeonsDragons.com. Follow along Wizards underscore D&D on the Twitters. Like the Facebook page. Check out Twitch.tv slash D&D for all of the fun streaming of D&D content out there. And our YouTube channel, which has been popping off with amazing videos. <laughs> from Ted, Todd Kenrick, uh, and there'll be a lot more for Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel um, coming out in June. Popping off with Todd Kenrick. <laughs> That's, we got to pitch that to Todd yes. for his new, uh, uh, new, new oh, series. Oh, I can just picture the intro right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, if you want to uh, follow along with me and Shelly, we are available also on the social meds. Uh, and again, Totes. available for podcast and or other appearances that you might want to make uh, around Welcome to Dragon Talk. There's the email in the show notes, but if you want to just message us on Twitter, that works too. I am at Greg Tito on Twitter and on Instagram at Greg underscore Tito. I'm at Shelly Moo, which also rhymes with goo. That's right. I just what I was trying to say. You are not only a, a snail rider or snail racer. Oh, just a snail. No, not just just the snail. Not even but the, the snail who races. It's a racing yes, snail. I'm a racing snail. A yes. racing snail. There yes. you go. Uh, in Wild Beyond the Wishlight, Shelly Moo is also um, you. And and have we talked about my Spelljammer character? No. Oh, well, yeah, it's a little bit. Your plasmoid. My plasmoid, whose name is Jelly Goo. What? That, She's amazing. That is high camp, and it's what Spelljammer is all about. Yep. So cool. All right. Love it. Well, one of your other characters, uh, mm. Drunky Two Shoes, is having a bad day. Having a very bad long day, and recently saw a Griffin writer in the city of Waterdeep crash after being smacked by a very tall, gargantuan doppelganger um, into a building. The Griffin wet slapped against the facade of the building and slid down. <laughs> Ryder and Griffin are now in a pile on the uh, ground floor. And Balthazar, your gnomish mm. ally, left you there uh, to f- to try to administer some type of help to this group. What are you going to do? So Balthazar is just gone. He I flew can't off. scream <laughs> after him. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll see I'm, you on the other side. Yeah, I think so. I will run up to the Griffin and the Ryder and say, are you, are you guys okay? You hear a muffled uh, 
grown um, from what feels like underneath the griffin. And I don't know, you see that the, the griffin's neck looks like it's been broken. Uh, it Jesus, is, it is, Greg! It is, I know. It is, is not breathing? The griffin is itself he... is not breathing, but you do hear a groan um, from underneath it. But, Greg, you know I love animals more than people. Why did you kill the griffin? The griffin is dead, is what you're telling me. From your your quick assessment, yeah. If you want to do like a medicine check to to get more information, I uh, will. Okay. Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. So you kind of you see a lot of uh, uh, blood, uh, and as you get closer, you try to you know lay a hand on the, its body, and it's still temperature wise uh, warm, but you don't feel any pulse. Okay. As I'm, I. I'm assuming I cannot lift a griffin myself. <laughs> you could try. All right. You're going to try to just lift it straight up? Or you're just trying to get it off of... Uh... Yeah, just trying to get it, see what's causing this groaning noise okay. underneath. And also, are there any anyone else around me? Can I just be like, help me, help, help, help? There are, uh, you, you can certainly yell that. Um, you see a few f- uh, furtive movements around this fight with the giant doppelganger has been going on for uh, a few seconds. And so people immediately started screaming and ranting. So it's a little bit deserted right now. But as you're saying that, you're seeing... Uh, inside the building of the facade that the Griffin had just crashed against, um, m- maybe someone hiding behind some furniture within the building itself. Please help me! I, please, please! I need help! Somebody's dying out here! Oh, oh, oh but what, isn't please. it dangerous? No, just get out here. Oh, Nobody's but... here! Nobody's here! The oh. doppelganger is distracted. Um, You see a halfling woman... Uh, uh, say, oh, what, what can I do? And please help kinda, me lift this griffin, please. There's somebody underneath him. Uh, okay. And she's, she goes Aww. to you and starts... Thank you. And she's like, wait, 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 uh, oh gosh, this is awful. I know, it really is disgusting and awful. And I'm I'm going to cry about it later. But for now, we are going to lift this griffin. Are you okay. ready? Okay. Ready. One, two, three. <laughs> oh, actually, you, you roll with advantage, uh, a strength check. I got a six. Oh! With advantage, you got a six? Oh, no, sorry. Hopefully you get better than a six. I got a 13. Okay, good. So yeah, you, you the two of you uh, heave, and it's not easy. It's slippery with the oh. amount of blood that's under there, but you're able to kind of move this hulking weight of a griffin off of a um, humanoid figure. Um, he definitely doesn't look good. Uh, it seems like his... Uh, um, Midsection is not moving, but he's he, uh, and his eyes kind of are fluttering, kind of trying to look at you as the pressure of this, the weight of the griffin is off of him. Okay, I yeah, say it's to a the human, uh, dark hair, dark eyes. Is he hot? He's super hot, <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, maybe paralyzed from the waist down. Eh, I can work. With that. <laughs> okay. I say to the kind halfling woman, do you have anything that can help? Do you have any healing? Do you have any bandages? Do you have anything? I literally have nothing. I, I, I yeah, Yes, this is a, a place of healing. Oh, uh, God. And so she, she brings out um, uh, bandages and starts uh, administering to the person. Can you help the griffin too? I think the griffin's too far gone and veterinary and uh, amongst magical beasts is not one of my strong suits, but I, I'll, I'll see if I can help. He's this... Yes. That's this brave soul's pain. Yes. Okay. Um, and then the, uh, you hear a, a small voice say from the man, my 
wand. Where's your wand? And uh, you see he also has uh, a wand holster uh, at his side. Okay, I'm going to go through that. Okay. Uh, you see two of the wands are broken, uh, but mm-hmm. one of them is still intact, uh, and it is uh, able to be functioned. Okay. What does this wand do? What does this do? Uh, and you look at it, it's, it's you know, gold. It's got uh, weird um, cross-section on it with, uh, almost looks like jacks with colorful uh, circles on it. It's, it's a weird-looking wand. He says, uh. wonder. And then he kind of falls unconscious. Oh, crap. I mean, I feel like because I'm a magical person, I would know what... All right, roll me an arcana. Okay. We're going long on this one. Wait a minute. How do I have... How am I not trained in or proficient in arcana? Boy. Rolled an 18, though. Rolled an 18? Rolled an 18. You are fairly certain that this is a wand of wonder. Oh, not to be confused with my old classmate, Wanda Wonder. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see what you are able to do with that wand next time. All right.